Okay. Welcome to the Scottsdale Big Book Study, where we will study the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Today's date is the 18th of November, 2023. My name is Audrey Ann, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from County Mead in Ireland, and I will be your host for today's study. Also co-host is Tanya G, and Q&A is Sue L. If you have any questions during the meeting, please contact myself or any of the co-hosts by private message in the chat function. And the chat function will be disabled until five minutes before the Q&A session. Please note that the speaker, Harlan G, will be recorded for the duration of the study. However, the question and answer session, which follows, will not be recorded. We ask if you can please make sure to keep your microphone on mute at all times during the study. And also please turn off your video if you are exercising, eating, or if you need to step away from your screen at any reason, for any reason. During the meeting, we will post the link to the seven tradition. This money goes towards the cost of the Zoom account, the cost of uploading the recordings. And we also send contributions to Intergroup Arizona, Serenity in the Desert Intergroup and World Service. We will post the link to the previous week's recordings and they are available by clicking on the link. And I will now turn you over to Harlan. Thanks, Harlan. Thank you. Thank you so much, Audrey. Thank you. And thank you for everybody, to everybody for coming this morning. I'm really glad you're here. You know, you probably get tired of me saying this, but it's going to be 73 degrees here today in Scottsdale, Arizona. I hope it's as absolutely beautiful where you are as it is here. It is sunny and absolutely gorgeous. Uh, I've, I was uh, in Chicago last weekend. I was in Arlington Heights, Illinois last weekend, and it was also actually very nice, too. There was a, a very atypical November, mid-November in Chicago. It was just beautiful. And so I've been uh, been very lucky the last, last little bit here weather-wise. We have been talking about the, the beginning of the chapter, A Vision for You. And this is something that is a little different. It's just so much more fun for me to talk about than talking about the chapter to employers. To employers, we're normally talking about the loss of the disease. We're talking about loss, denial, and ignorance. Loss, denial, and ignorance. And in the chapter uh, to employers, we also see a lot of things that can be used for sponsorship. Like if the person really isn't serious, you know, let them go. If the person really isn't, you know, doing what you want them to do, you need to, you need to let them hear a different voice. This is, this is basically the message of the chapter and that we are unaware of uh, so much of what happens, you know, with alcoholism, not just so much of what happens, but who has it? What is alcoholism? So we talk a lot in the previous chapter about ignorance, denial, and loss. And that is something that we have to talk about because it is a fact of life. But I'd rather talk about this. I'd so much rather talk about a vision for you. And the chapter, A Vision for You, is written as an answer to a question. And the question is, what is my life going to look like without the food? Drinkers have something that I feel in my experience is a bit different from what I had as a compulsive overeaters. Drinkers have a sociability. They have belly up to the bar and let's drink and let's go here to drink and let's go there to drink. And there's all kinds of components to alcoholism that are a bit different from what I experienced as a compulsive overeater. 
But when they talk about the conviviality and they talk about the the real pleasures of the eating, mine are different in so far as they didn't include other people. But what they did include was me with the food, me isolating with the food. And that was the difficult thing to separate from. What was my Saturday night going to be like when I didn't have my threesome? And when I say my threesome, it's me, Little Debbie, and Sarah Lee. And if you don't know who Little Debbie and Sarah Lee are, Little Debbie is a pastry that you can buy at your store, and Sarah Lee is pastry that you can buy at your store. So it was me, Little Debbie, and Sarah Lee. And every once in a while, we would invite Ben and Jerry. We would invite, you know, whatever, maybe Colonel Sanders. We would invite him to join us as well. So we had our little little party with every all the various uh, components to it. Uh, me, little Debbie, Sarah Lee, what have you. And so that was my conviviality. Now, what I want to remind you of is that we are very lucky to be alive at a time when this book and Alcoholics Anonymous and uh, uh, Overeaters Anonymous are active and they are helping millions of people, millions of people, some born, some not born, but these programs will be helping people for generations after we are all gone. So the first thing we're gonna look at this morning is the, is the paragraph on page 153. Our hope is that when this chip of a book so we're going to come to that paragraph on page 153 our hope is when this chip is that when this chip of a book is launched that's where we're going to start but what we're going to get into today what we're going to get into this morning is we're going to get into a little bit of the history of what brought this book about what brought the fellowship of alcoholics anonymous about so that is something that we are going to get into. But what I want to remind you of is how lucky we are for thousands and thousands of years, people that were afflicted with alcoholism, drug addiction. Yes, they had drugs many, many years ago. England and China fought wars called the Opium Wars over drugs. And there was the laudanum and there was opium and there was heroin and there were different things that were uh, fought over. They didn't maybe have some of the drugs that we have today, but there were drugs. There was liquor. There was everything that you could imagine. Maybe the names have changed. The, the chemical compounds have changed. Some of the other things may have changed, but they very, very definitely had ways to get you high or get you drunk thousands and thousands of years ago. King Solomon in Israel, thousands of years ago, he wrote about people that tarried at the wine. They tarried too long at the wine. And he wrote about this. And in the book of Solomon, he wrote that he believed that alcoholism was an illness, but he couldn't prove it. And he had no remedy for it. He had no remedy. So we have Dr. Trotter in England in the 1640s. And he wrote that he believed that alcoholism was an illness, but he couldn't prove it and he had no remedy for it at all whatsoever. In 1790, the Surgeon General of the United States of America, the Surgeon General was 
uh, Dr. Benjamin Rush. And if you come to Chicago, you will see a street called Rush Street. Rush Street is named for Dr. Benjamin Rush. A number of years ago, I think she's dead now, but a number of years ago, there was a movie star in Hollywood and she appeared with Frank Sinatra in a movie called Come Blow Your Horn. And she was in other movies. Her name was Barbara Rush. Some of you may remember her, most maybe not, but Barbara Rush was the great-great-granddaughter or the great-granddaughter of Dr. Benjamin Rush. And she appeared in movies, like I say, with Frank Sinatra and so on and so forth. Well, anyway, for thousands of years, people were so afflicted with this and there was absolutely nothing that they could do. There was nowhere for them to go and people preyed on them. They would sell them phony drugs, phony things. We call them snake oil salesmen, con men. They would try to sell them different things to remedy their alcoholism. Uh, you know, a bottle of Dr. Good, as it's called. You know, if you've ever heard the song Gypsies, Tramps and Thieves, she says uh, he sold a bottle of Dr. Good. And that was usually what they called it, Dr. Good was, you know, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, to take this. Uh, uh, scalp, uh, sore feet, take this. You know, that was what, and they would sell you the same thing. Usually there was liquor in the bottle. Usually there was liquor in what they were selling you. Well, anyway, for thousands of years, people were prey to these snake oil salesmen. And for alcoholics, for many, many thousands of years, they were relegated to asylums and they were relegated to um, involuntary lobotomies and all kinds of things. And they were confined in, in, in asylums that were more like prisons than they were anything else. And the bottom line is, is that for many, especially the women, it was nightmarish. It was actually worse on the women. Men alcoholics had it bad. Women alcoholics had it worse because a man alcoholic, well, he's considered a drunk sot. He's considered a person that is of, 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 uh, of, of low character, no discipline, stupid, you know, lacks willpower. These are the things I was told too. But a woman alcoholic, tramps and, and all kinds of things, and they were sterilized against their will and lobotomized against their will and raped in these places. It was just an absolute nightmare for any alcoholic, but especially female alcoholics had a tremendous, tremendous, horrible nightmare of an existence in these places. It was nightmarish. So let's go to page 153 on the on the in the middle of the page, our hope is that when this chip of a book is launched on the world tide of alcoholism, defeated drinkers will seize upon it to follow its suggestions. Many, we are sure, will rise to their feet and march on. They will approach still other sick ones and fellowships of Alcoholics Anonymous may spring up in each city and hamlet, havens for those who must find a way out. Well, let's take a look at this paragraph because this paragraph sure as heck has a lot of hope for us because this paragraph is just chock full of good stuff. This chip of a book for the very, very first time 
in the history of the world, there was a way out. And if we follow specifically the instructions, it says to follow its suggestions, suggestions, my left foot, you got to follow the instructions here. And now there are forces within OA that would love to have this book not be conference approved literature for OA. A lot of a lot of people within OA, the structure of the trustees. I was a delegate for two years and there was a woman that got up and she was running for a delegate position and she railed against the big book and she was swept into office. I mean, swept in by the largest plurality of anybody I had ever seen. And there are forces within OA that if they had their way, this book would not be conference approved literature. They're very, very hope. They're very uh, against it because they want us to recover with the OA literature. And for some that can, God bless them. But most like me cannot. I need the instructions. I need the the um, uh, ideas and the instructions in this book because this book tells me what is wrong with me? And now what am I going to do about it? And one of the things that uh, people do make a mistake of when they when they uh, look in when they look when they follow this book is they confuse it for a book about losing weight. And it's not the only time that the food is mentioned is in the first chapter, the first doctor's opinion, and then Bill's story and some of the, you know, uh, there is a solution and more about alcoholism. That's all step number one. But from that point on, it's a book about how to live your life. It's not a book about losing weight. It's a book about how to live your life. And when you live your life this way, you don't have to eat that way anymore. So this chip of a book makes it possible for people like me who had no clue, no idea that there was a way out. When I was younger, I didn't even know there was a way out. I just thought, well, I'll die because I can't live with the food and I can't live without the food. And today I have a fuller living experience than I could ever have imagined. And in many, many ways, I am in places in my life that you cannot get to by yourself because I couldn't do it. I couldn't, I shouldn't say you, I could not get there by myself. I needed this book. I needed the instructions in this book. Now, when they first started out, which we're going to be getting into in a little bit here, they didn't just set out to write a book. They actually set out to do three things. They wanted to write a book and codify the program of recovery. They wanted to start a hospital for alcoholics. And Dr. Bob was going to be the head doctor of the hospital that they were going to put all the hospital chain, not one hospital, but a chain going all around the country. And they, that's what they wanted to do. And they wanted to have a group of paid missionaries, paid recovered people that would go spread the news of the recovery that's in the book and in the program of AA. And too many times 
especially now the program of OA doesn't match up always with the book of AA. And that's where we often go astray. The closer that our program tallies to the book of AA, the more recovery we're going to see. So this chip of a book has saved not only my life and your life, but the lives of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of generations of people yet unborn that will come into this world and need this and it will be there for them. Whereas a hundred years ago, it was not there for them. The book was written in 37 and 38. Some of it was written in early 39 and it was printed, published on April the 10th, 1939, April 10th, 1939. And since that date, there is a proven workable method of recovery from addiction. And there is nothing in this world, there is no uh, system of recovery, method of recovery that can touch the numbers that this has generated. This book has recovered more alcoholics, drug addicts, compulsive overeaters, gamblers, you name it, sex and love addicts, you name it, has recovered more addicts back to society than all other methods combined. There is nothing that can even hold a candle to this con the contents of this book. Let's move on. I'm, at, I'm on 153. In the chapter, Working with Others, you gathered an idea of how we approach and aid others to health. That means sponsorship. That doesn't just mean driving them to a meeting or, you know, whatever. That They're talking specifically about sponsorship. Uh, uh, suppose now that through you, through you, several families have adopted this way of life. You will want to know more on how of how to proceed from that point. Perhaps the best way of treating you to a glimpse of your future will be to describe the growth of the fellowship among us. Here is a brief account. Now, before we get into the next paragraph at the very bottom of 153, we want to remind ourselves that the person that is making the journey to Akron, Ohio, not Akron, not Akron, Akron, Ohio, the person that is making the journey to Akron is Bill Wilson. And he is there because he has been contacted by some business people to help take over a company called Akron Tire and Rubber. It's a machine shop. Akron is where Goodyear, Goodrich, and Firestone are. It was it, the nickname of Akron is Tire Town because a lot of the tires that you drive on are made in Akron, Ohio. Maybe not so much anymore as many of them are made overseas, but for generations of Americans, the motors came from Detroit and the tires came from Akron, Ohio. So when you see the Goodyear Tire Company with their blimp or you see Firestone, Bridgestone, whatever you see, those are Akron companies. Those are companies that did their business in, still do their business in Akron, Ohio. Bottom of 153, years ago in 1935, one of our number made a journey to a certain Western city. Now he refers to 
Akron as a Western city, because you have to remember that he's East Coast centric. He was born in Vermont, but has lived in New York for quite a number of years. So anything west of the Appalachian Mountains to him is a Western city. So he's talking about Akron, Ohio. From a business standpoint, his trip came off badly. Had he been successful in his enterprise, he would have been set on his feet financially, which at the time seemed vitally important. Now, he was not there to begin AA. He was not there to find Dr. Bob. He was not there to start a meeting. He was there so he could help himself uh, in business. He wanted to make money. He knew that if he could take over this proxy fight, take over this uh, machine shop, that there would be something in it for him as the, it was agreed upon that if he could get them to win the fight, that they would elect him as the president of the corporation. And this is something he desperately wanted. He wanted to show Lois that he could indeed make a living and that he could indeed take care of her. Top of 154, he would have been set on his feet financially, which at the time seemed vitally important. But his venture wound up in a lawsuit and bogged down completely. The proceeding was shot through with much hard feeling and controversy. Bitterly discouraged, he found himself in a strange place, discredited and almost broke. Still physically weak and sober, but a few months, he saw that his predicament was dangerous. He wanted so much to talk with someone, but whom? He didn't know anybody there. He knew that from his experience in New York, that the only way for him to stay sober is to talk to another alcoholic. Let's let him tell you. One dismal afternoon, this would be Saturday, the 11th of May, 1935. This is the day before Mother's Day, 1935. One dismal afternoon, he paced a hotel lobby wondering how his bill was to be paid. At one end of the room stood a glass-covered directory of local churches. Down the lobby, a door opened into an attractive bar. He could see the gay crowd inside. In there, he would find companionship and release. Unless he took some drinks, <clears throat> he might not have the courage to scrape an acquaintance and would have a lonely weekend. And so he's in this bar at the Mayflower Hotel in Akron, Ohio. Now the Mayflower Hotel is not in a very great neighborhood and it's a nursing home. It's not a hotel anymore. It's actually a nursing home, but you can still see it to this day. You can go there if you choose to. And the Mayflower Hotel had a bar and it had a church directory. When I was a little kid, hotels and motels had a church directory for travelers. If you wanted to know where's the Episcopal church, where's the Catholic church, where's the whatever, the, the Baptist or the whatever, the Lutheran, they would have it in the hotel because if you were traveling, you often would need that information if on Sunday or a special holiday or something you wanted to go to church, they would have the directory there. And there was usually an address and a phone number attached to these listings. 
And Bill Wilson is looking at the bar and he knows if he goes in there, he's going to be in trouble, but he's very lonely. Remember on page one, it said, I was very lonely and again turned to alcohol. And remember how many times we've talked about this fact that alcohol is never the problem. It's the solution to the problem. And if alcohol is the solution, then what's the problem? The problem is the ennui, the pain, the frustration, restless, irritable discontent that we feel when we're not eating, when we're not drinking, that buildup of human emotion, boredom, happiness, jealousy, fear, anger, whatever that may be, guilt, shame, remorse. And that those feelings are not very comfortable for us. And I've been many things. I've been scared. I've been angry. I've been hurt. I've been brokenhearted. I think one of the worst things I've ever been is lonely. When you're lonely, it's a very, very terrible feeling, just terrible feeling. And he misses Lois. He doesn't, he's a little, not a little, he's very scared. How's he going to get home? He doesn't really have enough money to pay his hotel bill. He really doesn't have enough money to get home to New York because his friends, supposed friends from this proxy fight, they left him and went back to New York. They just left him there. You know, I guess they were maybe upset about the way the thing went. So he, let's let him tell you, I'm on 154. Of course he couldn't drink. But why not sit hopefully at a table, a bottle of ginger ale before him? After all, had he not been sober six months now? So this is May. He got sober in December of 1934. And we're going to go over that when we get back around to Bill's story. But for right now, you're going to have to trust me. He will get sober on December the 14th. He will work the steps December 14th. 1934. So he's been sober for six months now, and he has more sobriety than anybody probably in the world. Okay, perhaps he can handle, say, three drinks. Now he's trying to justify it now, just like I do. Well, I'm lonely. I'm here in Chicago. You can't get this stuff in Arizona. I think I'll go to the pizza parlor. I think I'll go get this. I think I'll, because there's food that's indigenous to any area that's very hard to get other places. You know, Chicago is an eating town. Chicago is very much an eating town. Well, I have to make sure I work my program. I have to make sure I work. I do the things I need to do to work my program. Okay. Fear gripped him. He was on thin ice. Again, it was the old insidious insanity, that first drink. And he knows it, but that may not help him unless he takes action. And how many times do people come on the meetings and they say, how do you put down the food? How, well, I've put down the food a million times and I've eaten a million and one times. What can I do? Well, Bill Wilson is exemplifying for you in these next few paragraphs what to do specifically. He took action. He didn't sit there and put up his dukes and try to fight the urge to eat this food by himself on his own volition. That's not going to work. My unaided willpower will not keep me out of the food for four seconds. It just will not do it. I have to have the, the, the power of God. I have to have the 
the program working for me. And the way to bring God specifically into the equation is to pick up that 20,000 pound phone. See my phone here? It weighs 20,000 freaking pounds. Not now because I'm not making an outreach call, but if I have to make a 10 step call or you know whatever, this phone weighs 10,000 freaking pounds and it's really heavy. Not, not now, but it seems to gain weight when I need to make an outreach call. And that's often what I need to do is reach out, get out of myself and do the things that are consistent with this program. Very, very important. Bottom of 154. But what about his responsibilities, his family and the men that would die because they would not know how to get well? Ah, yes, those other alcoholics, there must be many such in this town. He would phone a clergyman, his sanity returned, and he thanked God. Selecting a church at random from the directory, he stepped into a booth and lifted the receiver. Now, Bill Wilson changes a little bit of his reality when he wrote the book. He's giving you an impression that is not true. He's giving you the impression that he selected a clergyman at random, called the clergyman and hooked him up with Henrietta Cyberlink and, and the rest is history. That is not true. <sighs> he phoned seven or eight clergymen before he got to, to uh, Reverend Tunks, who hooked him up with Cyberlink. And they all said, what are you calling me for? People in my church don't drink. If you're an alcoholic, I'll see you in church tomorrow and we'll talk. But he didn't, you know, and people were slamming the phone down. Now, I sell on the phone for a living and I've trained telephone salespeople for decades. A lot of people, when they first come into telephone sales, they get hung up on a bunch of times or eight, 10 people in a row tell them I'm not interested. They're gone. They're not going to continue dialing the phone. Some of you that have had sales jobs know. When you sell, you're no, I don't care what you're selling. More people are going to say no than yeah. I don't care if you're selling $100 bills on the street corner for $1.50. More people are going to say no than yes. Now, you may question that. Why would somebody say no? Go try it. Walk up to somebody and say, I have a $100 bill, bill here. I'll sell it to you for $2 or $1.50. And most people will say no. They're suspicious. They don't. They don't trust you. 155, the top. His call to the clergyman led him presently to a certain resident of the town, who, though formally able and respected, was then nearing the nadir of alcoholic despair. The nadir is the bottom, the depths. Now, the, the person that he was led to is Dr. Bob Smith, Robert Holbrook Smith. And the way that he got to Smith, Smitty was through Henrietta Cyberling. Now, is it odd or is it God? Henrietta Cyberling was a member of the Oxford Group movement for quite some time. And Harvey Firestone lived in Akron and he had a son that was alcoholic. And his son being an alcoholic, Harvey believed that the Oxford Group could help him, even though the Oxford group was not dedicated to anyone's sobriety. The Oxford group were people practicing first century Christianity to the best of their ability. But Harvey wanted to expose his son to a better relationship with God 
in the hopes that that would help his son achieve some modicum of sobriety. And when and Harvey would come out of his pocket and pay these ministers to come to Akron, because normally Akron being a small town, they would not normally go there. They would go to Cleveland, they would go to Cincinnati, but they would not go to Akron. Now, what's funny is the largest city in Ohio is neither uh, Cleveland nor Cincinnati. It's Columbus. Columbus in the last decades of life has overtaken uh, Cincinnati and Cleveland as the largest city in Ohio. I've done a big book study in Columbus, Ohio. I was there. Beautiful, beautiful city, Columbus, Ohio. I remember being there, just a very nice town. Uh, I was right off the campus of Ohio State University. And that's where I did my big book study. Very lovely, lovely town. Uh, we uh, The Ducks play Ohio State next year in Eugene. I'm not looking forward so much to that because they're a tough they're a tough group to beat. But I hope we can lick them. I hope we can beat them. But anyway, so Bill Wilson is in Akron and he he talks to Henrietta Cyberling on the phone. Now, try to put yourself in this position. Henrietta Cyberling is a single woman. She's in a divorce proceeding with her husband and the Cyberlings own Goodyear Tire. And Henrietta and her children are living in the gatehouse. They're not living in the main house. They're living in the gatehouse. She says to Bill Wilson, oh, yes, I've been expecting you. Come on over. Could you imagine you're a single woman? This guy calls you on the phone. You don't know him from Adam. He tells you he's a rum hound from New York. And he wants to know, do you have a drunk that he could talk to? And you say to this person, yes. Come on over. I've been expected. You just imagine that. Now, I'm going to tell you a little sidebar here. Dr. Bob's home on Ardmore Street at 855 Ardmore Street in Akron is a national historical site. And it has been for a long time. When you go there, if you haven't been there, or if you've been there and you didn't notice this, go back. There is a plaque on the front of Bill Will of, uh, of Dr. Bob's home. And it says, this is a national historical site and blah, blah, blah. And it was introduced to legislation by John Cyberling, who was a congressman from Akron in that district. John Cyberling is the son of Henrietta Cyberling. And when he went to the floor of Congress to propose that Dr. Bob's home become a national site, he brought with him a very touching letter. See, his mother was too old to travel at that time. He brought with him a very, very touching letter from his mother. And she wrote the meeting she wrote about the meeting of Dr. Bob and Bill Wilson in her home on May the 12th, 1935, which was Mother's Day. And as the result of reading that letter on the floor of Congress, they passed the necessary law or the regulation to make Dr. Bob's home a national historical site. Now, I'm going to tell you something. You can't make this stuff up. Guess how many steps it takes to get from the street up to Dr. Bob's home? 12. Now, you can't make that up. 
you know, that is it odd or is it God from the street? It's, it's like up on a hill from the street to the house is exactly 12 steps. I am not kidding you. It's not been altered. It hasn't been changed. <clears throat> it hasn't been anything like that. It is 12 steps to get to the house. You can't make this stuff up, guys. All right. <clears throat> it was the usual situation. Home in jeopardy, wife ill, distracted, bills in arrears, and standing damage. He had a desperate desire to stop, but saw no way out. Dr. Bob was a hopeless alcoholic. He didn't see any way out. He didn't know there was a way out, for he had earnestly tried many avenues of escape. What had he tried? One of the things he tried was the Oxford group movement, and it didn't seem to work for him. And now what's going to happen is things are going to change a bit for Dr. Bob because he's going to get some information he never had before, but he's going to be more ready. A lot of times there's a cosmic timing to life and there's the cosmic timing means that you heard the message a million times and all of a sudden one day you hear it for the millionth and 13th, millionth and 14th time and all of a sudden it just clicks. It's as if <clears throat> you had never heard it before in your life. You just, you know, you've never heard this before. Okay. <clears throat> Painfully aware of being somehow abnormal, the man did not fully realize what it meant to be an alcoholic, to be alcoholic. This refers to Bill's first visit with Dr. Bob. These men later became co-founders of AA Bill's story opens the text of the book. Dr. Bob heads the story section. See, Bill's story is was uh, or is page one. Now, Dr. Silkworth's letter, Dr. Silkworth's section, the doctor's opinion, used to be on page one. Now it's in the Roman numeral section. And my theory why they moved it is they want the book to be by alcoholics and for alcoholics. But Dr. or excuse me, Bill Wilson's story opens up the book and it's worth studying. I have some really good podcasts on that. And pretty soon we'll be back around to Bill's story. But I have some very good podcasts on Bill's story. They're at scottsdalebigbook.com. That's scottsdalebigbook.com. I'm very proud of those podcasts. <clears throat> when our friend related his experience, the man agreed that no amount of willpower he might muster could stop his drinking for long. Now, when they're talking about our friend, they're talking about Bill Wilson talking to Dr. Bob in the Cyberlink uh, Gatehouse on May the 12th, 1935. A spiritual experience he conceded was absolutely necessary, but the price seemed high upon the basis suggested. He told how he lived in constant worry about those who might find out about his alcoholism. He had, of course, the familiar alcoholic obsession that few knew of his drinking. Now, see, this is something I could never really pull off. When you talk about drinking or drugging, and some of you with food were able to pull off looking normal. I was not. I am of the belief, and I have been of this belief for a long, long time, and I'm going to tell you what my belief is. <clears throat> I can't prove this to you. I, I, there's nothing in the big book. There's nothing in a science 
journal. There's nothing in any book that proves this. This is what I believe. So you're free to ignore this. I believe that compulsive overeating and alcoholism and drug addiction and gambling, they are spectrum disorders. What does that mean, a spectrum disorder? That means we are affected identically, the allergy of the body and the twist of the mind, but we are not affected equally. Some of us have a worse case than others. This is something I believe after 44 years of observation in this program, I believe that compulsive overeating is a spectrum disorder. And from the time I was a little boy, I was five, six, four, whatever I was, my weight and my consumption of food was topic one on the agenda. You know, people would yell at my mom and dad, how could you let them get so fat? How could you let them eat this? How could you let them eat that? And so I could never look normal. I could never, you know, when he says that he had the obsession that few knew of his drinking, how was I going to lie to people about what I was eating when by the time I was a senior in high school, I was 335 pounds. By the time I was a sophomore in college, I was about 500 pounds. By the time I graduated college, I was about 600 pounds. So how was I going to walk into any environment and think that somehow I was going to fool anyone about my compulsive overeating. I mean, I certainly didn't get fat from breathing chocolate air. I certainly didn't get fat by, uh, by drinking chocolate water. I certainly didn't do that. So I was eating in a very, very abnormal way, very abnormally. Okay. Why, he argued, should he lose the remainder of his business only to bring still more suffering to his family by foolishly admitting his plight to people for whom he made his livelihood? He would do anything he said but that. Now, I'm going to expand on that for you. Bill Wilson brought a lot of information to the first meeting that he had with Dr. Bob. And one of the key pieces of information that he brought with him was what he had learned from Dr. Silkworth. And what Dr. Silkworth taught Bill was the allergy of the body and the twist of the mind. The allergy of the body, the physical component was something that nobody ever had considered before in their entire life. This was always considered to be madness, weakness, insanity, stupidity, lack of discipline, lack of character, lack of religion, whatever. But the body was afflicted and affected as well as the mind. He brought him that information. He taught him about the twist of the mind, the mental blank spot. He learned all that from Silkworth. But what other component did he say to Dr. Bob? And that is he laid out the program of recovery. And one of the things that he laid out for Dr. Bob was amends, restitution. Now, amends is AA language. Amends is AA language. Restitution is Oxford group language. We don't talk about restitution, but I'm going to stay with restitution because there was no AA then. So I'm going to stay with Oxford group language. So Dr. Bob, he said, 
I'm not going to do, you know, I'm not going to do any restitution because if I have to go admit to people that I'm alcoholic, I will lose whatever business I have. My wife and I will live in disgrace. I will lose my home. He wouldn't do it. Now, what we learn later on is from, we learned this from Sam Shoemaker. Sam Shoemaker was the rector at the Cavalry Mission in New York City. I hope I'm not going too fast. I'm just kind of bouncing around history for you to kind of clear things up. But Sam Shoemaker wrote a book called Twice Born Ministers. And on page 93 of Twice Born Ministers, you don't have to ask me this during the question. That book is not going to help you recover. I promise you, it's not going to help you recover. But what I will tell you on the on page 93, uh, he lists four impediments to God. What is an impediment? An impediment is something which slows or stops progress. It could be a speed bump. It could be a wall. It could be a dead end. It's something that slows or stops progress. So in keeping with that, one of the four impediments is a restitution that you will not make. So Dr. Bob is refusing to make this rest to make restitution to anybody. So we're going to learn that although Bill meets Bob in May, May 12, 1935, Dr. Bob will not achieve any, well, he'll achieve some sobriety during May and June, but he will not achieve anything like long-term sobriety until the middle of June, 1935, when beaten down by alcohol for the final time, he not only agrees to make restitution, he actually goes out and does it. He actually goes out and makes restitution. So as long as he's doing that, he's going to be in recovery. When you start to refuse to do this and you refuse to do that, and you're telling God what you won't do, recovery becomes impossible. Impossible. Bottom of 155. My voice is going a little bit, so please bear with me. But my voice is not great. I'm doing the best I can. Being intrigued, however, he invited our friend to his home. In other words, Dr. Bob hears Bill telling him that he's broke and he's at the Mayflower. He invites him to their home. He just met him and invited him to be home. But there's one other thing I do want to tell you. When Dr. Bob agreed to go to Henrietta Cyberling's house, he said to his wife, Anne, I'm going to give this guy from New York 15 minutes. They came at five. And they agreed that at 5.15, Anne would have one of her sick headaches and that they would have to go home. They stayed up in that library in the Cyberling Gatehouse for, for six hours. They did not come down until about 11 o'clock. And when Dr. Bob came down, he said, this is the first man that understands my drinking. Now, why is that funny? Why is that almost funny? Because Bill never said a word about Dr. Bob's drinking. He didn't know anything about Dr. Bob's drinking. He told Dr. Bob of his own drinking. He told Dr. Bob about himself. And through Bill talking about himself, Bob was able to identify, he was able to identify. And so this is one alcoholic talking to another alcoholic so that the second alcoholic's feelings of differences abate 
So at a, it is at that point when the second alcoholic begins to take action after action after action that he does not yet believe in, this is the point that recovery can take place. When the second alcoholic identifies, this is when um, this is when recovery is able to take place. Okay, so bottom of 155. Being intrigued, however, he invited our friend to his home sometime later. And just as he thought he was getting control of his liquor situation, he went on a roaring bender. For him, this was the spree that ended all sprees. And this is when Dr. Bob went to Atlantic City for the American Medical Convention. Now, there are some dates in the big book that are incorrect. One of the dates that's incorrect is June 10th, 1935. The date was really the 17th because the American Medical Convention started on the 10th. Dr. Bob could not have been home by the 10th. He didn't get home till the 17th. But when he went to the convention, he always got drunk there. He was drunk at the train station on the way out. So he, he, he drank the whole time he was away. It was not a good situation. Sometime later, and just as he thought he was getting control of his liquor situation, he went on a roaring bender. This is in Atlantic City. For him, this was the spree that ended all sprees. He saw that he would have to face his problems squarely, that God might give him mastery. So he is convinced now, because of his drunkenness in Atlantic City, that he cannot do this by himself. He is going to have to surrender. And if you ever listen to Vision in the Morning, which I hope you do, you hear our friend Nancy, Nancy P. from Massachusetts. She always ends her shares with, say it with me, surrender, surrender, surrender. She always, she always finishes her shares with surrender, surrender, surrender. And that's what Dr. Bob had to do. He had to surrender. One morning, I'm at the top of 156. One morning, he took the bull by the horns and set out to tell those he feared what his trouble had been. He found himself surprisingly well-received and learned that many knew of his drinking. So in other words, he's all scared about what these people think of his drinking and they don't know. Yeah, they knew. They knew he was an alcoholic. Stepping into his car, he made the rounds of people he had hurt. He trembled as he went about for this might mean ruin, particularly to a person in his line of business. He was a proctologist. He was a rear-end doctor. He was a proctologist. And people do not exactly want you operating on them if you're an alcoholic. Call them crazy. You know, if he's drinking, uh, they don't want it. And if he's not drinking, they don't want it because his hands get awful shaky. He's got that scalpel in his hands. He could really hurt somebody. So, they, you know, he was very, very much afraid. 156. At midnight, he came home exhausted, but very happy. He had not, he has not had a drink since. As we shall see, he now means a great deal to his community, and the major liabilities of 30 years of hard drinking have been repaired in four. So you see, Dr. Bob. He didn't want to go out and make restitution to anybody. He was afraid that they would, uh, you know, ruin whatever little practice he had, whatever little home he had would be taken from him and so on. But he became convinced that he had to do that. 
and he he had a surgery scheduled that morning. And Dr. Bob was taken to the hospital by Bill Wilson, and Bill Wilson did something for Dr. Bob that a lot of uh, sponsees in AA wish their sponsors would do for them. He gave him a beer because he wanted to settle down his hands because he had an operation that morning, gave him a beer that day, but that day he went around making amends. And so uh, that was his, you know, that was the day of his, of his last drink. And, you know, he, he died sober in November of 1950. He died sober as anything in November of 1950. And this, uh, restitution that he made was critical in his um, in his what do you call it in his achieving any modicum of sobriety. Now, November the sixteenth, which was two days ago, which was Thursday, was the date that Doctor Bob passed away. November sixteenth, nineteen fifty. But Doctor Bob died with fifteen years of sobriety. He will he will die with 15 years of sobriety. And he remains our co-founder. And he actually achieved his co-founder status by default. You know, it could have been Ebby, but Ebby was drunk by September of 39, 30, 35. Ebby was drunk. It could have been Fitz Mayo. It could have been Hank Parkhurst. But Fitz had cancer and Hank Parkhurst was drunk by September of 39. Well, you don't want a drunk member uh, being co-founder of AA. So Dr. Bob actually became co-founder almost by default. Fitz Mayo could have been considered co-founder. Dr. Silkworth could have been considered co-founder. But the one that they would have considered the strongest was Ebby, because Ebby brought the message to Bill. But by the end of summer 1935, Ebby was drunk. So what were they going to do? And it took Ebby many decades to achieve any long-term sobriety, but he died, <clears throat> he moved to Dallas, Texas, Ebby, and he lived there during the 60s. And during that time, Bill Wilson was supporting him financially. Bill supported Ebby with revenue from the big book because Ebby had a real hard time making a living and Bill felt that he had a tremendous debt to Ebby and he supported him. But Ebby was in Boston Spa, New York, visiting from Texas. Boston Spa is in upstate New York. Ebby was born and raised in Albany, New York. And they had a home in Manchester, Vermont. But he was born and raised in Albany, New York. And while in Boston Spa, New York, he passed away. But when he passed away, he had five or six years of good sobriety. But Ebby struggled, Ebby in and out and in and out. And, but Ebby could never get over that he brought the message to, to Bill. And this doctor, this lanky doctor in Akron is getting all this juice, this attention. I'm the one that brought Wilson the message. Yeah, but uh, Ebby was drunk and Dr. Bob was sober. That's a no brainer. You can't have a co-founder of AA that's drunk. That, that's not going to work too well. That's not going to get us very far. But Dr. Bob did live out his life. And there are a lot of things about him that have been sort of um, mystical. Uh, you know, people think he was this angel with, with wings. And stuff. He was a good man. He was a good man. But he was very human. 
very human. You know, he was very, uh, he, he fought. Uh, he didn't, he was not crazy about women coming into AA. He had an expression under every skirt is a slip. And he was not very happy that women were coming in later on. Sylvia Kaufman was uh, from Evanston, Illinois. And her story is um, is in the big book too, right after Earl Treese. Her story is in the big book. I think it's the keys to the kingdom is, is her story, if I'm not mistaken. But anyway, she came to Akron to get herself charged up for sobriety. And she was uh, a wealthy divorcee. She was in her 30s, very attractive. And it got, she she decided she was going to move to Akron. She can live anywhere she wants because she wanted to be around these guys. They were sober. And Dr. Bob got wind of it and he didn't like it. He didn't want her moving there. And she got wind of what he said. And she was very hurt. She was drunk on the train going back to Chicago. She was drunk because she was very hurt by him. And his expression was under every slip, under every skirt is a slip. Uh, I don't think girls wear slips anymore, but they did when I was a kid. I don't think they wear them anymore. If they do, then they then I then the joke's on me. But I don't think so. Um, there, you know, used to be a, like a signal. You're, you're, there's a signal. Uh, your barn doors open means your zippers open, and they used to say something to the girls that means your slip is showing, something like that. But anyway, doesn't matter whether they wear them or not. Not the not really the subject of our of our talk. But we're going to um see in the next couple of weeks how they work the steps how they worked with others we're going to get a lot of questions answered in the next couple of weeks but i just want to write this down for a second here this is page 156 and i'm going to start with but life but life was not okay um what i would like to do is I would like to take a minute here to make an announcement to you. Um, I appreciate that there's 109 of you here. That's wonderful. The OA birthday is coming up in January. It is the 12th, the 13th, and the 14th. And this is a magnificent convention, just a magnificent convention. And we'll give you an opportunity to expand your God squad. We'll give you an opportunity to make new friends. It'll give you an opportunity to see and hear uh, shares, uh, meetings that you don't normally get a chance to see or hear. And we're going to have a vision for you meet and greet. We're going to have a Scottsdale meet and greet. We're going to have a sponsor sponsee meet and greet. There's going to be specialty meetings for, for different groups of people, different sects of people. We're going to have specialty meetings. We're going to have on Saturday afternoon a luncheon speaker. We're going to have on Friday evening an opening speaker. Saturday night, a dinner speaker, a dinner dance on Saturday night. Sunday morning, the sober eating workshop, the end of the big book study. I'm doing the big book study in Los Angeles this year. I'm proud to be doing that. It might be my last one for a while, but I'm proud to be doing it. And uh, the closing speaker, the closing ceremony on Sunday. Oh, it's just a wonderful convention. Please go to oabirthday.com. Couldn't be simpler. oabirthday.com. And I hope sincerely to see you in Los Angeles. I hope that you will be there. 
Um, I'm going to turn this back over, but before I do, I'm just going to remind you, if you asked a question,